We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you join me in taking your Bibles and turning to 1 Kings 19? verses 9 through 18 this morning as we continue our journey together looking at the life of Elijah, a series we've titled Humble Heroism. And we have been studying together what it looks like for a man of God to stand out against the times when things are, the world is evil, there's pressures on him. And so we have seen that over the past several weeks. But we also were able to see last week what it looks like when someone gets to the end of their rope when they find themselves in a place where they are past troubled and they've reached the place of depression, they've reached the place of anxiety, they've reached a place of anguish. We know that Elijah found himself under a broom tree right after one of the most magnificent events that's recorded in Scripture. You remember that showdown on Mount Carmel where God showed himself to be God above Baal. You remember that God brought about the rains, but it was following that that Elijah found out that the wicked queen Jezebel had not repented, and in fact, she wanted his head. She wanted him killed, and so he found himself on the run, and he found himself in the very southern part of the land. In fact, he found himself all the way down in the wilderness under a broom tree. And that's where God discovered him, and it's where that God ministered to him. It's where he was fed, and where he was taken care of, and where he rested. And we saw that God began to restore a man out of this place of deep depression when he was at a place where there was nothing more that he could take when he was at the end of his rope. But it was following this event that we find that Elijah has not completely emotionally healed. He hasn't completely spiritually healed. And so he takes off, and where we find ourselves this morning is that Elijah has gone all the way to Horeb, and he has found a deep, dark cave. And that's where he set up his residence. But God meets him in that cave because God's not finished with him yet. And God has a message to Elijah in the midst of the cave, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the despair, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the depression. And God calls him out. And my prayer for you all week has been that God would call you out of whatever cave you have found yourself under, whatever broom tree that it may be that you're sitting in today, that God calls you out to invite you to do something completely fresh and completely new and to tell you this morning that He is absolutely not done with you yet. So if you're ready to be encouraged by the Word of God, I ask you to stand with me and we'll read together 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 9 together. And the Word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face And went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meshelah to succeed you as prophet. And Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Lord, would you teach us today to be able to answer the question, what are you doing here? Lord, encourage our hearts as you call us out of the caves and out from under the broom trees today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated this morning. There's a lot of questions that you're going to ask and that you're going to answer in your life. In fact, hundreds a day of questions that you either ask or somebody asks you. But there are certain questions in your life that stand out above every other question in your life. Questions that define your future. Questions that define your identity. Questions like, will you marry me? How you answer that question is huge. Whether or not you ask that question, it is huge. Sometimes you're going to stand before someone and you may hear this question, will you accept this job offer? What you do with that question is going to determine a lot about your future. Will you move to this location? How you answer that question is going to determine a lot about your future. Where are you going to continue your education? How you answer that question is going to continue, is going to determine a lot about your future. But as you know and I know, sometimes it's God that's the one that asks the questions. And sometimes those questions are penetrating and right to the point. And every now and then, God asks a question just like he asked Elijah. What are you doing here? Every one of us needs to be able to answer that question. What are you doing here? At this place in your life, what are you doing here? Why are you here and what are you doing because you are here? He meets Elijah in a place of darkness in a cave and he asks him that question. Now I'm thankful in my life that I have heard that question asked of me by God hundreds of times. And so have many of you. I'm thankful that I had parents that raised me in church. I'm thankful for Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and ministers. And I'm thankful for people in my life who taught me the Word of God so that at times in my life when I found myself in places that I never should have been, that I was able to hear that question in my heart and my soul. Larry, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I knew absolutely that I was in places and doing things that I had no business doing because the Lord asked me that question, what are you doing here? And sometimes the Lord comes and asks those questions when we're in the places of darkness and we're in the places of struggle and we're in the place of anxiety and we're in the place of despair. And yes, even when we find ourselves in the place of depression and the Lord comes to us under the broom tree and he comes to us when we're in the cave and he asks that very question, what are you doing here? But we need to step back and ask a theological question about this. And it's really about the character of God. 
And we say that we believe that God is omniscient. And that means that we believe that God knows everything. So if God is omniscient, then when God asks a question, is God asking the question for information? When God asked Elijah the question, what are you doing here? Is it because God didn't know the answer? Is it because God really was wondering? Or is there a different reason that God might ask a question? If we believe that God is omniscient, then we believe that God already knew the answer to the question. So the question wasn't so God could gain information. The question was so that Elijah would have to answer the question, so that he would have to face up to what it is that he was dealing with, that where Elijah was physically already showed where he was emotionally and where he was spiritually. And he had placed himself in a situation to indulge negative emotions. Now, We're not going to get off into a lot of psychotherapy here, but I think it's really important to realize something, that you and I are just like Elijah, and we are very good at finding places to indulge negative emotions. If you want to be bitter, you can find a place and a reason to be bitter. If you want to be angry, you can find a place and a reason to be angry. If you want to be fearful, you can find a place to be fearful. If you want to feel rejected, you can find yourself in a place to feel rejected. If you want to be lonely, you can place yourself so far away from people that you can be lonely. And some of the emotions that we feel, we continue to manufacture because we place ourselves in in those places so that either so that either we can wallow in self-pity or because we don't want to face those emotions because we know we would have to own up to some things in our lives and we would have to deal with them and how many of you know that can be incredibly difficult that's where Elijah found himself and in this feeling sorry for himself, he had missed the ways that God was already at work. As we read about Elijah's life, could you imagine someone who had seen or been able to be a part of more incredible things than Elijah, yet he's missing it? Because what's just happened has left him feeling like a failure. He's scratched himself out a clean place and thrown a fit. You heard his answer, and it's fascinating Because what we're going to study today, we've got to really dig into this text because there's something really interesting here. You see, Elijah has gone and he's thrown himself a fit. You hear it. God, you called me. I answered. I left Tishbe. I followed you. I put my life in danger. I preached your word. I stood against Baal. I stood against Ahab. I stood against Jezebel. I thought there was going to be revival, but there's no revival. There's been rain, but nobody's serving you. My life is in danger. And you see what serving you has got me? All it's gotten me is a quiet cave that's dark and black. And if it's okay with you, if you'll just leave me alone, I'll I'll just stay here because obviously this didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. This didn't work out the way I had it planned. And so if you'll just leave me alone, God, leave me to my bitterness and leave me to my rage and leave me to my depression. If you'll just leave me alone, I've had all of it that I can take. I'm at the end of my rope. But what we've got to figure out today is what happens in Elijah's life. Because God comes and God speaks to him in an incredible way. But I don't know if you caught this when we were standing up reading a moment ago. Elijah gives his answer. What are you doing here? And God does incredible things. 
We read, what did, what did we see that God did? We see that he comes with a windstorm that breaks mountains apart. He sends an earthquake and he sends a fire. Now, even though the Lord wasn't in all of those things, he eventually comes and speaks to Elijah in a gentle whisper. And we're going to come back there in just a moment. But I want you to jump ahead because after God does all those things, God asks him the exact same question. Did you notice that? Word for word. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you would think, wouldn't you, <laughs> that if you had just seen a windstorm strong enough to break apart mountains, you had seen an earthquake, you had seen a fire, right? And then you had heard the gentle whisper and the voice of God that you might maybe be inclined to believe that God didn't like your first answer. Right? That, obviously, if your first answer had been a winner, you wouldn't have seen all of this. But God does all of this and comes back and says, now let me ask you again, what are you doing here? Now he's going to change his answer, right? Wrong. Word for word, he gives God the exact same answer that he gave him before he had witnessed all of those things. So taking all of that into account, we have to go back and look and see what it is that God is doing to bring him out from under the broom tree and out of the cave. And number one, he calls Elijah to forget everything else around him and to focus on the Lord to forget everything else around him and focus on the Lord. You see, what Elijah, he's in the cave and all he's doing is focusing on the negative things, the terrible things. But instead, he says, I want you to forget all that for a minute and I want you to watch me. I want you to watch me. And then these events start happening. Windstorms and earthquakes and fire. And here's what I wanted to know when, when I read the passage. How did Elijah know that God wasn't in those things? I think that's a great question of the text. Well, the Bible never answers that, but what we do know is that even though that God wasn't in the windstorm, even though he wasn't in the earthquake, even though he wasn't in the fire, God calls them. And here's what's important about each of those three things. Every time one of those events happened in the Old Testament, up till even Elijah's time, those were precursors to God's coming or God's speaking. When God caused windstorms, earthquakes, fire, that would have been a sign of the presence of God coming. So any of those things would have been something that some, someone would have expected with any knowledge of the Old Testament for God to move in. But God did not. So God did not speak through those events, but God shows his power over those events. So even though he doesn't speak in them, it's obvious he calls them, amen? And for Elijah, before you ever hear the still small voice, they should have been a general reminder that while you're in this cave, you serve a God who controls wind. While you're in this cave, you serve a God who controls earthquakes. And while you're in this cave, you serve a God that controls fire. And sometimes one of the greatest ways that God calls us out of broom trees and calls us out from under caves is reminding us of who he is, right? Of what he can do and of his power. Sometimes the best way to lift ourselves out of the slimy pit and onto the rock is to be reminded of who the God we serve actually is. 
So he uses these elements, but he's not in these elements. But the Bible says that he was in the still, small voice. So here's where I had to stop and ask myself what I believe is a very penetrating question. God, if you were speaking to me in a still, small voice, would I hear it? Are you speaking to me in a still, small voice? And I'm just missing it. Of one thing I am sure, I don't think Elijah would have ever heard the still, small voice had it not been for the windstorm, had it not been for the earthquake, and had it not been for the fire. And I can prove that to you by your own personal experience. I don't know that I can fully explain this other than tell you it's the human condition. But very few people listen to God unless he gets their attention in radical ways. Sometimes it's through tragedy. Sometimes it's through pain. Sometimes it's through difficulty. Sometimes it's through heartache. And you find people that they've been living their life doing what they want to do. And all of a sudden, they're only now at a place where they would even be able to hear the still small voice of God because they've been on their plan and they've been on their agenda and they've been doing their thing and it had to be interrupted. And so now, Elijah's pity party has been enormously interrupted. And God has spoken to him in this still, small voice. Now, I want us to be careful because in this, I think there's a reminder that sometimes in our day, we get so enamored by people who claim to have seen or experienced God in some type of fantastical, monumental way that those of us that experience God in a more, quote-unquote, regular day-to-day basis— can become so overwhelmed that you say, well, I must not really be experiencing God if I didn't see him in the earthquake and if I didn't see him in the storm and I didn't see him in a fire and if I didn't have some grandiose vision. But what this passage proves to us is that the way that God wants to speak to people is every day in a still small voice. So the saints that we need to be most impressed with are not those that come up and give outlandish stories about experiencing God in some fantastical way. The saints we need to be most impressed with are the ones that walk so closely with God that day by day and moment by moment they are hearing and experiencing the still small voice of God because they commune with Him on a regular basis. But there's something in this passage that I think a lot of us need to hear. I told you that this wasn't going to be an exercise in some type of pop psychology. But just think with me for, a will, for just a minute about the old question that people ask. You take a glass and you make it half full or half empty of water. And then you ask somebody, you say, do you, do you believe that this glass is half full or half empty? And supposedly the way you answer that question determines whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, whether you see the world as half full or half empty. And you, you, see, you hear those people that say, well, I'm just a realist. I just see it for the way that it is. I want us to focus for just a moment on something that's, that may sound a little off at first. But lean in and listen. Maybe it is that 
we need to quit caring whether or not we see the glass as half full or half empty. Now, why? Because we have spent billions as a society telling people that we need to analyze their feelings. Billions. Sit on a couch and tell me how you feel. Let's express your inner emotions. I want you to just unburden yourself and tell me how you feel. Now, I think that there's certainly a place for that. But here's the problem with that. Then we take it and we say, well, however you feel, that validates it. Because that's the way you feel. But the problem is, is that there are a lot of people that believe lies. And so I feel a certain way, so now I have validated the feeling because this emotion has come into my life. But God doesn't allow for that in Elijah's life. He doesn't say, oh, you feel lonely, you're lonely. Oh, you feel dejected, you're dejected. Oh, you feel rejected, you're rejected. No, Elijah was believing a lie. And I heard a good friend of mine say something a couple of weeks ago, and this just, it just stuck with me. We were talking about someone, and this is what they said. They said that that person was so ignorant that they did not know what they did not know. Now think about that for a minute. It is possible for you to be so ignorant that you don't know what you don't know. Can I tell you that all of us suffer from that? We think we know everything, but when it comes to our own emotions and the things of God, we are ignorant because we don't know what we don't know. And so because of that, we validate our feelings, but we validate them with ignorance and with lies. And that seems to me to be a dangerous way to stay in a cave. When God's calling us out of those places, and when he calls him out, Elijah recognizes God's voice, and we give him credit for that. It says he put his cloak over his eyes because every time someone had a vision of God in Scripture, they found themselves in fear because God is holy and deserves reverential awe, and that is the only way to respond to having an experience with God. And this gentle whisper comes, and yet, even through the gentle whisper, Elijah's answer does not change, verse 14. So God has to come to him after reminding him to forget everything else around him and focus on the Lord. And then in verse 15, he says this, go back the way you came. Number two, if you're taking notes today, how does God penetrate your heart and soul by asking you this question, what are you doing here? He reminds you. Remember, you still have work to do. You still have work to do. He says, go back the way you came. That's simple enough. We're, we, can, we keep reading. But what he's saying is, if you just boiled that down, get out of the cave. Come on out. Let, let me just say it like this. God's looking at him and saying, I'm not through with you. You see, sometimes we can believe the lie that our best days are behind us, that God's done everything that he wanted to do with us, that whatever we experienced before is all we're going to experience in the future. And we need to be reminded that God still has enormous plans for us. And yet, God can't enact those plans if you stay in a place of self-loathing, of self-pity, if you're in a place where you're in indulging every negative emotion, every bit of loneliness, every bit of despair, every 
every bit of depression, every bit of fear, every bit of anxiety. And so God calls him, and the way that he motivates him, Notice that he wasn't motivated after an earthquake. He wasn't motivated after a windstorm. He wasn't motivated after a fire. And he really wasn't motivated after a still small voice. What motivated him was God looking at him and said, you still have work to do. And that applies to every single one of us. God is not done with you. You still have work to do. So he gives him the specifics, where he needed to go, who he needed to anoint. And then having done that, he calls him out to do the job. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not going to come up on the screen. But there are three things that if you're listening or taking notes that are absolutely essential to coming out from under a broom tree. Three things that are essential to coming out of a cave. I'm not telling you that these are the only things that you have to do, but I'm telling you if you do not do these three things, you will stay in that cave. Number one, number one, you need to thank and praise God for how he has worked in your past and how he is working in your current life. If we don't, all we do is focus on what's wrong. All we do is focus on our problems. All we do is focus on our issues. That's why every prayer shouldn't begin with supplication. Every prayer ought to begin with adoration. We ought to begin by praising and thanking God because it frames our mind, it frames our spirit, it frames our heart. One of the reasons that we begin worship service in song is because there is a necessity to get your heart right before the word is preached to you. And there are a lot of people that would never hear a sermon if they didn't sing to God first. Because we come in sometimes with our problems and our issues and all of those things. And the first thing that we need to do is to praise and to thank God. And no matter what dark of a place you're in right now, no matter how deep you are in the cave, no matter how far under the broom tree you are, I would venture to say that there is not an individual that can hear my voice that does not have a reason to thank and to praise God. If you have to dig deep, you thank God and you praise him for specifics. You remember what he's done for you in the past and you thank him for doing those things in the past and you praise God. You say, well, Larry, is that going to get me out of the cave? It's not going to hurt. All right. That's number one, but that's just the first one. I told you there was three. Number two, number two, get to work on what God has given you to do. Get to work on what God has given you to do. Now, here's where I get a lot. I know, I know, I know the objection, but I don't feel like it. Well, I hope you listened a little while ago because really, who cares? We don't just get to do what we feel like doing, do we? You don't get to do what you feel like doing every day. You wouldn't go to school. You probably wouldn't go to work. There'd be a lot of things you wouldn't do if you only did what you felt like doing. And part of getting ourselves out from under broom trees and out from under caves is doing what God has given you to do. You say, well, what has God given me to do? You already know that. If you're a husband, be a husband. If you're a father, be a father. If you've got a job, do the best job that you can at that job. If you're a student, then you ought to do the best job you can to be the best student that you can be. If you're an athlete, you ought to be the best athlete you can be. And you say, Larry, what does that have to do with glorifying God? Because it's what God's put in front of your plate right now. 
Do something with that. Do the best you can with that. You say, well, I don't like my job. Well, you're not going to get a better one because you don't do a good job at it. Y'all are laughing. I'm serious, right? You say, well, I, I don't see what school matters. You'll have that attitude the rest of your life, and you'll probably never get anything. Do you ever do anything really in life because you never applied yourself to what God put on your plate? If we want God to give us more responsibility, then we need to do a good job with what he's given us now, right? So part of it is do what God's put on your plate to do. I don't know what he's got in store for you for the future, but most of you know what he's got in store for you today. Do it. Do a good job of it. That's number two. You say, so Larry, if I thank God and do what he has me to do, is that going to get me out from under the broom tree and out of the cave? It's not going to hurt. Number three. Number three. This is, this is so deep. So, so deep. You ready? Do something to help somebody else. A lot of us suffer from ingrown eyeballs. We focus on ourselves all the time. Me, 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 my issues, my problems, what I've got dealing with. It is amazing that if you will do for someone else, if you will think about someone else, if you will serve someone else, if you will give to someone else, that all of a sudden God will use that in your life to help you quit focusing on yourself. That's what he did with Elijah. He said, come on out of the cave. Not, not only should you be praising me for what's already happened, but you've still got work to do. And by the way, some of that work is going to be that you're going to go bless somebody else. And you can't do that from this cave. Simple recipe. You say, is that going to fix everything? It would fix a lot. It would fix a lot. I love the story, the end of John's gospel. You'll remember that Peter's denied Jesus three times. There on the night of his crucifixion, and then Jesus rises from the dead. He spends 40 days, many appearances, over 500 people. But almost at the very end, before Jesus ascends, they're out fishing, and Jesus is there on the seashore, and he cooks the disciples breakfast. And he says, Come on in, it's time for breakfast. And they come in from a night of fishing and they all begin to eat. And he singles Peter out. And he asks him, I guess, the most important question anybody could ask anybody. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Rabbi, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. What was the importance of that conversation? It was helping Peter to know that even though he had done something horrific, terrible, denied Jesus, that Jesus had not only forgiven him, but that Jesus was not done with him. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But what I do know is this. God's not done with you. And he wants to continue to use you. And so at the very end of this passage, it almost seems like that you could have left it at that. But I'm so glad God didn't leave it at that. Because you remember me telling you that you're so ignorant, you don't know what you don't know. 
God slips that in on Elijah. It's almost a by the way, BTW moment. He says, oh, and, and by the way, check out 18, verse 18. Just so you know, that whole I'm all alone, nobody loves you but me, nobody cares about you but me, nobody serves you but me, nobody's ever done anything for you but me, the world can't make it but me, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and if I don't, I'm not the one that brings it about, then nothing's going to work. It's me, 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 me. He says, by the way, not only is it just not you, but there's 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know what you don't know, and you don't know how I've been working in other people's lives, why I've been working in your life. And I think you need to hear this today, loud and clear. I understand that we are constantly in a negative spin cycle. Everything's negative. Negative, 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 negative. If you want to be a pessimist, it's easy to do. Amen? I mean... The news is negative. I mean, our local news, you can't even watch that before bed. You won't be able to go to sleep. Everybody getting murdered. I mean, you can't even hardly watch the, the weather anymore. It's always something negative. National news is worse, right? You got weather, whatever those balloons are flying all over the place diseases coming that you don't know what they are. We got national problems. We got inflation. You can't afford eggs. I mean, there, it, it, every time you turn around, it's just negative, 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 right? Well, a lot of you have bought into that, and I have too. I'm, 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 not, I'm putting my, we bought into that. We just run around like chicken little. Sky's falling, sky's falling, sky's falling. And I thought about that this week. We are so ignorant that we don't know what we don't know. And God looks into our life and says, all the while, you're just negative, 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 negative. What you don't know is that I'm moving in incredible ways. And that people are getting saved all the time. And that the Lord is moving, not just in this community, in this state, in this nation, but he's moving around the world. And then this hit me. This is so simple. God has to speak to me in simple ways. I just thought about the word gospel. And let me tell you what the word gospel does not mean. The word gospel does not mean bad news. The word gospel does not mean mediocre news. The word gospel means good news, which, yeah, yes, you can clap for that. It's good news. So when you're walking around here looking like Eeyore all the time, glass is half empty, the sky is falling, nothing good's going on, our community's falling apart, our state has bad leadership, there's the White House, is, we're not getting any leadership out of that, and you're going on and on and on and on and on. Some of that is a little faithless. It is. And the reason I say that is that the captain of the army of God is Jesus Christ, and he's a winner. He's a winner. And so sometimes I think we need to be invited to have the attitude of winners. 
that we would say we already know what has happened, we know what is happening now, and we know what is going to happen. So I'm not going to allow Satan to take my heart captive to all of this living in a cave and under a broom tree and letting the world declare to me how I ought to feel when the Word of God and the author of the Word of God has spoken that into my heart and into my life. And so I want to talk to you this morning as your pastor, as your friend, as your teacher, coach, however you look at the role I serve. And I want you to to look at me, and I want you to hear me. First Baptist Summit, we are not quitters. We're not quitters. You're not going to quit. You're not going to quit. And the reason you're not going to quit is because you've been called to something bigger than yourself. You're not going to give up. You're not going to give in. You're not going to quit. You can't quit. You've been promised by God that if you do not become weary in doing good, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You have a fantastic prize in reaching the finish line. Paul knew that. I have in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will anoint not only to me, but to all of those who look forward to seeing the day approaching. Heaven is my reward. Jesus is the captain of my salvation. And I would tell you that, friends, some of you have felt like giving up. Shame on us. That's a sin that we ought to repent of. We ought to get back to the place where we recognize that we are a group of people that believe we are already in the winner's circle because we have been drafted by the captain of our salvation so that because of that, we lift up our chin, we quit looking at the ground, and we look unto heaven with the realization that God is not done with us. We forget everything else around us, we focus on him, and we remember that we still have work to do. While we're doing those things, we're going to always remember that we're going to praise him through the storm. We're going to keep doing the work at hand. And number three, we are going to do something for other people instead of completely focusing on ourselves. And friends, if you will do that, you will keep putting one foot in front of the other, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, then what I already know is victory is ours. There is victory in Jesus. So you quit living like a loser and start winning like, start living like a winner because you are one. Come out of the cave, hear the still small voice of God, and run to the God of your salvation. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.